with that, um, welcome everybody. I have a great guest today. I've been really looking forward to this conversation as someone who's never served in the military but grew up an army brat. Um, I have a great affinity for talking to military veterans and getting their unique perspective on things. So I just want to give a quick introduction to Colonel Rob Campbell. And then Rob, if you could just give us a little bit on your background and then what you're doing today and a little bit about the the particular type of audience that you serve with what you do today. Yeah, thanks, John. It's good to be with you on the show here. Um, uh, Rob Campbell, Army veteran of 27 years, turned uh, leadership author, speaker, and consultant. I was an infantryman and a paratrooper in the Army, uh, served in the 101st, 82nd Airborne Division, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, wrapped up my career in 2016 and didn't know what I wanted to do. Like most transitioning service members kind of stumbled into book writing. And that's where I realized, okay, I could make a living off of this or at least start a business on this. And I started speaking and coaching, which I still do today. And I got into entrepreneurship and I bought a small business here in Johnson City, Tennessee that sells window fashions. And you wouldn't see that as a match, but for me, it's a vehicle to give back to the community and a chance for me to get a team around me again and practice what I preach. And so on a journey, six years deep into my military transition since I served and still travel on the journey. So speaking of journeys, that, that's a perfect transition into one of the questions I wanted to ask you, um, which was as, uh, as an army brat, uh, I've moved 21 times. Uh, my dad was in the army 30 years. I think some of it rubbed off on me because a lot of that was af obviously after my dad retired. How many times in your 27 year career did you move? We moved 16 times and um, you're right. It gets into your DNA. It's like every few years goes by and okay, what's next? Where are we going? Right. Yeah. So for those of you who have moved four or five times for a job or a career and think that's a lot, no disrespect, but uh, military service members and their families um, have a little bit different lifestyle, which um, I talked to my my 84 year old mom who also said, just to give you a little bit of context. I never served, but my dad was in the army for 30 years. He was in infantry, he was a Green Beret for a while. My mother served 28 and a half years as a civil servant working for the army and the Air Force. Um, my brother was six years in the Air Force. Almost every uncle that I can think of off the top of my head served in some branch of the military. I was one of the few that, that never served. Um, my parents, drilled into my head, you're going to get a degree and you're going to go a different path from us. <laughs> um, and so as a good son, I listened. Um, but I have some memories from days growing up as an army brat. And I'm curious, some of the things that you might remember, some of my memories include little things, like I still mm -hmm. carry these little guys around when I go camping. P38. P38s. So for any of you civilians, you can get these on Amazon for like a buck and change. Uh, it's a little can opener. <laughs> um, and some, just some of the phrases and habits that were ingrained in me, little things like early is on time, on time is late. Um, the term strack, can you talk about the term strack? Because that's something my dad <laughs> used to talk to me about. Is that still a term that's used in, in the military these days? Yeah, they still use it as far as I know. It, um, you know, it's an acronym, John, and I, I forget what it stands for. It was in Colin Powell's book. Um, and it, there's certain those letters stand for certain things. But what it but what it represented was a high standard. You know, everything is lined up neat, clean, ready. 
at the top of its game. And so you might use Strachan. Oh, yeah, this guy or this gal coming into our unit here is Strack. Right. They, they've got it together. They're the, you know, that they're the very best. Quite simply, that's what it meant. So, yeah, we, we still use that. Yeah. I don't think my dad ever explained it to me. Just I was in junior <laughs> ROTC in high school. And I just remember him saying, when you get your uniform together for uniform day, which is once a week, you need to look strack. So I remember yep. that. Um, uh, or be, better to have it, not need it, than need it, not have it. That was another thing that was ingrained in me. I'm that guy who's always got the fanny pack that everybody makes fun of, um, who also is the one that they go to when they're, hey, do you have? Yeah, I'm that guy. Um, <laughs> and then I, I'm obviously older than you are. I didn't grow up with MREs. Uh, I grew up, my dad used to bring home C rations. Oh, yeah. Way back in the day. So Sure. Um, and then the last one is voluntold. Um, which I think has seeped its way into the civilian world as well. Um, but Absolutely. we got volunteered for a lot of stuff as a kid. So the question that my mom wanted me to ask you, uh, growing up a you know, military uh, wife, was how do you feel the Army has improved on how it works with military families as they adjust to and deal with military life? Because yeah. back in the day, it was it was... It was difficult. It was challenging for the spouses. Especially. Sure. Yeah. When your mom grew up, the philosophy was if the army wanted you to have a wife, they would have issued, they would have you, issued one. you one. Right. <laughs> and uh, and what, what a horrible philosophy. It's funny sounding. Right. But but, you know, what's behind that was just horrible. And that's why I have such great respect for your mom and that generation. My mother-in-law is a Vietnam uh, era um, army wife, and, and she served during that time. Uh, the army, at least, and, and the military writ large, I, I'm confident in saying, has come leaps and bounds when it comes to families. They don't see service members as individuals. They see them as family units because they know what motivates that person, what drives that person day in and day out is knowing that their family is cared for or will be cared for if they have to go into harm's way. So old boss of mine, uh, once said that uh, family readiness, which is what it's called in the military, and it's a great term, it means the families are ready to endure the rigors of military service, to endure the separation that is uh, that will happen in service. He said that uh, the family readiness is a medal task. Now, medal stands for mission essential task. So we would use that to describe how good we would become, at, you know, like marksmanship and maneuver different things like that, that were all part of our war fighting craft. Well, he added family readiness as a metal task. And by saying that, it gave it the emphasis that it needed, meaning it, it needed the commander's attention. It was part of his or her uh, task list in terms of getting that company, that organization at the top of its game. So uh, yeah, tremendous programs, uh, really great inclusion now. It's just so much better than it ever was. Well, that's good to hear. Definitely, definitely good to hear. And I, mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting too, even as a kid, um, we were stationed sometimes on army posts, sometimes on, or I guess near air force right. bases. My dad retired yep. um, outside of Homestead Air Force Base. And I noticed immediately, even just as a kid, it seemed like it was a different standard. And I, I'm sure there are lots of differences between branches. Um, do you sure. feel like any of that has changed over the years? Um, or is it more mission bit. focused that, that drove that? 
No, maybe a little bit. I mean, there certainly is a difference uh, from living on a military base than off because you're guaranteed that all your neighbors are serving like you. Uh, although, you know, nowadays, um, the, the, the population around a military base has really become um, very heavily military because of the transient nature and the fact that there's not enough uh, military housing on, on base. So, so you find a lot of that. Um, so I like to think a lot of that bleeds into the population outside of military bases. But it's different wherever you go, John. Like I served in the 101st Airborne Division and Clarksville, Tennessee is right outside the base of Fort Campbell. The one of the best military community known across the army anywhere you go, because this is, you know, the, the population is so integrated with that military base. Whereas you go in some other places, probably Washington, D.C. be a good example where you find that's not the case, where you don't have to go far off the base and you're really into you know, your immersed back into society. Interesting. So you mentioned a word that kind of leads into a question. Um, you mentioned the transient population yeah. um, around the bases and i'm kind of curious when it comes to so as a a and a leader in the army obviously the tours of duty uh relative to to uh civilian jobs are, are much shorter right what what's a typical tour of duty in the army these days nine months anywhere from or? no it's uh it's right around the two-year mark that's about the oh, average okay. yeah okay so I guess that's starting to track more towards civilian civilian jobs now that civ civilian jobs are not people are changing jobs a lot more than they used to. Right. But the question that came to mind is with with people transitioning in and out of your command, mm -hmm. um, rapport is one of the areas that I think about a lot when it comes to communication, and it makes me wonder if there was a sort of a, a sense of urgency in building rapport with those new people that were coming in because you kind of had to get them up and running pretty quickly. So I'm wondering sure. if, if there were any, any things that you could think of um, that were particularly handy in your sort of toolbox to quickly develop rapport with new people um, when you became their leader in their new role. Yeah, well, we had a, the good fortune of the military that I often say, you know, I moved all over the, all over the world, <laughs> but, from unit to unit, base to base, I could be uh, assured of certain things, a family program, a leader development, career path, you know, a, a performance appraisal and things like that. Uh, so you'll find those wherever you go. Um, and so, so you had that. We were all kind of of the same cloth when we came together. So we weren't that far mm -hmm. off. It wasn't a stretch to kind of build those relationships. There was that immediate trust that you get with service members because we, we you know, we're all in this thing together. Um, I think you can replicate a lot of that in, in a private business. Uh, it, it takes a little bit longer and, and leaders got to be better at it because the difference is, you know, you're not, you're not, life or death is, is, is not at stake. Um, livelihoods are, and the mission is no less important. Um, but it's those things that we did to, to, you know, the sponsorship where somebody came in, it wasn't just like, okay, here you go, here's your desk. No, okay, you're now part of this team and let's get you introduced to everybody and get our arms around you, find out what you need meet your family and all those things help this move along quicker. Things move at the speed of trust, John. And, and the quicker you do things like that, make someone feel like they belong and they're welcomed and they're part of the team immediately, get their family embraced, then things move along a lot faster. You can build that rapport and enjoy the benefits we had in the military. 
So it makes me wonder about, um, I was talking to somebody the other day about coaching and how mm -hmm. they made a comment about how, if you look at most of the great coaches, sports coaches, they tend to have, whether it's innate or learned, this ability to identify the way someone needs to be led, motivated, communicated with, and they'll know when, when we have like a, a group huddle, they talk one way, but they, they, they know that there might be a guy that needs to be pulled to the side and this guy needs an extra pat on the back, but that guy needs the extra kick in the ass just based on how they're wired, right? Sure. Did you find a lot of that in the military as well? I did because we had the good fortune of studying leadership and practicing leadership in, in some very, very difficult situations. And when the chips are down and there's danger or there's hardship, just from running PT on any given weekday or being out in the field and, and fighting the elements, that's where you see the true nature of people come out and their character and all that bubbles to the top. So it, it kind of fast forwards the getting to know somebody, John versus Sam versus Mary versus Sarah, on what makes them tick. And therefore, leaders could apply their leadership in different ways. I had seven different men, the brigade I commanded, 101st, I had seven really, I call them subordinates or franchise organizations underneath me, separate elements. And every one of those seven leaders, I had to lead differently. Uh, it was because I, I took the time to invest in them and to get to know them as quickly as I could. So happens in the military, but it, it is, that's what coaches do is we're able to, to see that person on a deeper level and then tailor their leadership towards that person. Could, could you talk about, you mentioned the 101st, and yep. could you talk a little bit about what, what is the, the primary role of the 101st in the, in the Army at large? Because mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a little bit different mission, right, as I, as I understand it, and it's a, mm -hmm. um, I'll say it so, so you don't have to be, be humble about it, but being in a unit like that is, my guess is outside of like official special operations, it's a pretty... It's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty elite unit, sure. right? Can yep. you talk a little bit about what the 101st is about? Yeah, the 101st is, is at the end of the day, a land force uh, element of, uh, you know, three maneuver brigades and then some aviation brigades. What's unique about the 101st is its ability to uh, move around the battlefield. It's the most mobile uh Army military organization in the history of warfare. It can lift up a brigade uh, with rotary wing aviation and move it across the battlefield from place to place. So it gives it that uniqueness. <clears throat> it's got a, a tremendous history, obviously, uh, all the way back to World War II. But at its core, it's an infantry unit with the supporting elements around it, a full division that can close with and destroy the enemy, fight this nation wars. It can do a variety of things, but it's one of the Army's premier divisions there's a saying, you know, in, in places like the 82nd, 101st, because they fall under 18th Airborne Corps, which is, you know, known for its readiness and its ability to get places quickly, is that when you serve in the 101st, you know, you're not going to stick around much at home. You're going to be gone and go on places because units like that get called on a lot uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, first and foremost, it's that they're very good, they're well-trained, and they have good resources and equipment to be ready. Um, and so, yeah, that's what you get with the 101st. Well, that leads me to a slightly kind of related question, which is you're, you uh, went to Ranger School. Mm -hmm. um, and from my understanding and listening to a lot of military veterans talking about QRFs, Quick Reaction Forces, it's oftentimes the Rangers that are the guys that 
that show up to kind of they're they're kind of the the cavalry that shows sure. up. Um, and my understanding of Ranger School is that's the premier leadership school in in the military, uh, outside Indeed. of uh, the uh, military academies, but within the, mm-hmm. the military itself. Um, aside from the physical parts of Ranger School, which a lot of us have, have heard about, you know how difficult yep. that is. What are the biggest lessons you feel like you took from Ranger School that kind of stood you in good stead throughout your career? You know, it reinforced a lot of things for me, John. You know, there, there's certainly some pretty obvious things like selflessness. It's not about me. It's about the greater team. Uh, sacrifice that you have sometimes have to sacrifice for the greater team and the mission. About teamwork, how you're not going to get through anything alone. You've got to rely on your buddies and they need to be, relied, to be able to rely on you. So, okay, we all know that going in, right? Those aren't really, you know, hard things to discover. But Ranger School amplifies that because what they do is they strip away your sleep and they strip away your food and they put you in these rigorous conditions, desert, mountains, Florida swamps, and you have to lead under those conditions. And like we were talking about earlier, that's where you see the true nature of people come up. And that's where, you know, you can get as close as you can to combat without live bullets flying. Uh, That's what leadership did for me. It just really amplified those lessons and how important that is. And and that it sticks, it gets in your DNA. So um, you have a quote on your website. Um, I'd like you to give give us some context around this, if you would. Yeah. Uh, And it says, what if we make this investment in our people and they leave us? What if we don't and they stay? (laughs) Yeah. So that was a... um... That's a quote I took. Uh, I found it. It's uh, it, it's pretty popular, actually. It, this is a um, a chief financial officer talking to a CFO. Of course, you know, the CFO or to a CEO. Of course, the CFO is all about money, right? And he's seeing these money expenditures into the training and investment in these people in the organization. And he's looking at it from uh, strictly from a financial perspective, where he says to the CEO, you know, this could be uh, wasted money. We might not get our ROI back on this. So. He makes the case that, well, what if we spend a lot of money and they end up leaving? We'll never get our money back. And of course, the CEO, uh, who is more people focused and understands the investment in those that are in the organization, counters with, well, what if we don't and they stay, right? And that, and so that it justifies that investment that you make in someone. Uh, yeah, sure, they might leave you. Uh, listen, I've got four people here in this little small company that I owned, and I know they're going to leave me someday. And so I've got a choice. I can not invest in them and hope they stick around for a while, or I can make the investment. And guess what? They're probably going to hang around because that's what people are looking for in organizations. It's a great quote. Yeah, I remember, I think only one boss uh, in my big company corporate career who mm-hmm. I really felt like had that investment in me that even if, if it seemed like it ever got to the point where it wasn't a good fit anymore, he was like proactively on my side, like, hey, it, what can I do to help get you ready for that next role, whether that's yeah. a promotion here or moving on to some other company? Because we just had, I think as in the corporate world, it was as close as a civilian would get to that sort of foxhole buddy where you're just, you're working really long hours, you're traveling a lot, you're living out of suitcases, and you just have to really rely on those people that you work with. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, it was it it was an uncommon thing uh, in my experience in the big companies that I worked for. Um, 
Yeah, so, it's still that way, John. I, I I see that a lot where people don't get that investment and they don't they don't recognize that you have to be the champion for somebody like he was for you, even if that means you fly the coop someday and head on somewhere else. It makes it makes a huge difference because I, I still remember to this day, I'm not I'm not embarrassed to say it anymore, although back then I, I would have been, but I cried when I left. Like I packed up my box and when I got to my car in the parking lot, I cried because I loved yeah. that job. And the only reason I left was because the company was bought out. We were acquired and my boss's boss told all of us, you know, we're going to do the best we can to make sure everybody still has a job, but we're not in charge anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. I was like 23 years old and I was scared and I, you know, headhunter found me another job with a good salary and I left, but I always look back and thought, ah, what if I would have stayed? Uh, in hindsight, it was Blockbuster that I left, though. So <laughs> with hindsight being 2020, it seems like it was a yeah. good idea at the time. <laughs> but uh, um, so uh, one of the things that I focus on in my business with teaching communication skills is listening. And I'm curious, in, in all of the different unique environments that you were put in, what are some of the unique challenges you had in listening to understand in your roles? Yeah, uh, well, I think um, a few things got in my way over the years, and I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm better at it. I wouldn't call myself an expert listener. I don't know if you find one out there, but uh, as I reflect back on my time and I carry these lessons forward now into my, into my practice, uh, the first was just immaturity. I mean, I was as a younger Sir, just not having the sense that I just needed to close my mouth and, and really listen and take out take it all in. Uh, another was ego, uh, which is still there in all of us, where you, you listen to respond versus listening to understand. So you're, you're kind of like spring loaded and kind of leaning forward and waiting for the other person to stop so that you can come over the top and you haven't heard a thing they've said. Uh, that got in the way. And then um, time can be a challenge too because especially today, things are moving so fast that when we coach listening and we talk and we train listening, we do so from, you know, of course, a very comfortable environment to sit back and take it all in and take that time. And yeah, sure. I mean, and, and I try to do that hard, but boy, when things are moving fast and you know, you've got to get something across because the next challenge is, you know, around the corner that can, that can be a, a challenge to, to listening intently. So it's like all these forces at play that cause you to listen less or listen to respond or listen to anything but to understand. Um, so yeah, they're, they're there, they're prevalent and they still are. And I, I just think as leaders, you've got to be conscious of them. I have this level of consciousness now when somebody is talking that I I zero in and I listen and I do this intently because they, they have something to say and I really want to understand it. Yeah, that's great points. What I found that to be one of my biggest communication challenges still to this day. And I still, I keep, I tell people all the time, keep something to write on and write with mm. at all times. And for me, the biggest thing that that does for me is I keep trying to remind myself whenever I want to interrupt because I'm naturally curious, which is great, but can be sometimes inappropriate, is write down whatever it is I want to ask and then try to forget about it and stay focused. And even with that, to, to your point, I do this for a living. I, I train other people. It's one of those things is, as human beings, it's hard. Sure. Um, it's just a lot of natural instincts that we're, we're fighting. 
It um, is, yep. You mentioned awareness, and on your website, uh, you mentioned self-awareness and 360 assessments are part of uh, some of the things that you do in your coaching. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about the role of 360 assessments in your coaching? Yeah, um, you know, feedback is integral to a healthy work environment. Uh, and I've not seen anywhere really where that feedback is not included in some way, shape or form. There's been a lot written about feedback in terms of how you get it and the value of it, what you do with it. So I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a study in and of itself. Um, but, you know, one of the things I always said as a leader in the army, I never wanted a soldier walking around my organization wondering how they were doing. And it speaks to feedback. So who is giving them feedback? How are they getting feedback on their performance and how they're doing and, and how they can improve in their life? Uh, and so it's so important for, for that aspect that people are getting some, some sort of feedback because nobody is standing still as an individual. Organizations don't stand still and they grow. They, they grow people in, in, in organizations. And the only way you can grow is to get the feedback as to how things went, uh, how you're doing, uh, personally, how you know, what you're saying and, and what you're doing is affecting others. And so that's why it's so critical and it is, it's tough and fear is at play here. And that's the biggest reason why people don't get feedback because they're just mm -hmm. afraid of offending somebody and they're just nervous for that one-on-one -on -one conversation. Um, but it's so important. I mean, you just, you, you can't have a healthy organization without it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the things that, uh, occurred to me when I was looking through some of your, your material was the importance of emotional intelligence. I think it's important in all communication, mm -hmm. but in the context of what you did in the army and, and what you do now in coaching, what are some of the ways that emotional intelligence presents itself as a challenge where maybe people that you're coaching or working with have some, some gaps in their emotional intelligence? What are some of the ways that that you've helped them work through that? Yeah. Um, well, it's critical to have it. And, and there, are, there are stumbling blocks. Uh, one that jumps to mind really, and, and it's, it's um, indicative of our time is this whole Zoom, you know, uh, uh, connecting digitally like this and not in person to see the pick up on those cues and get a sense of somebody. What we don't get in these kind of video sessions that we have, which are very prevalent now in business, uh, is we're interacting in a formal setting, some sort of meeting, there's an interaction going on. What I don't get to see is John at work, interacting with others, just walking around in the break room, where I get to pick up on those cues of what makes him tick. You know, what, what is it about him? Um, we in the military, the military is a very human endeavor. I mean, that's one of the notions that, you know, we're just this machine with a bunch of weapons that go forth and do bad things to people. It's really, at the end of the day, a very human endeavor where we've got to get to know people to leverage them for the, for, you know, the most that they can give. So we were forced in a sense to get to know folks. And again, like I spoke of before, the rigors and the hardship, all that stuff comes out where your emotional intelligence is a bit easier to achieve. Uh, in private business and private organizations, a little harder because you don't have those kind of conversations. It's okay. What is it that makes you tick? I think by default, we're picking up on some cues and, and our emotional intelligence is gaining a little bit. 
but it still lacks greatly in terms of what, what's going on with people. I use an assessment called the Forte assessment. It's a strength assessment that is kind of a foundation of my coaching. Hmm. And, it, and it measures things like um, uh, dominance, non-dominance, um, introversion, extroversion, patience, impatience, conformity, non-conformity, all of which are strengths. You don't fall wherever you fall on there. There are strengths. Um, but it, it gives a sense of who somebody is. For instance, let's say you're very introverted and I'm very extroverted, but I don't know that. My, my emotional intelligence is not where it needs to be. And, and I'm leading you. So I thrust you into these social settings or in meetings, I'm asking you for your feedback instantly right there on the spot. As an introvert, you're not gonna function very well, right? I need, you can do social things all day long, but you need that quiet time to recharge your batteries, to think about your next move. I need to ask you, hey, John, I want your input on this. Can you come back tomorrow morning and tell me what you think of this? Give you that space to think through it because you're gonna come back and deliver something pretty profound. And, and that's what's missing is we don't see each other beyond the name tag, the job description, you know, or whatever else is there that we're, we're not getting to some of those root things. And there are simple ways you can do it. Um, I think one is just interacting on, in a social setting away from the office. Uh, I coach leaders a lot. So that's where trust is built. Uh, you, you're going to gain trust in me and vice versa. If you and I are in a social setting, get to know each other at a deeper level and building and increasing and improving that emotional intelligence thought to it yeah what you said about introverts is very insightful i i am more i'm kind of towards the middle but a little more towards mm -hmm. the introvert side and i yep. find there's a lot of confusion between introversion shyness and, and and other things where extroverts tend to have a little bit of a misunderstanding and the core of it is what you just you hit on totally. is how people get energy and lose energy in social interactions and that one little difference that you made, that one little tweak, let them have time to go off on their own because that's where they recharge and that's when they're, they're more in their head. And to your point, they can be very insightful, very thoughtful. They're just a little bit less inclined to, to articulate that in, in groups. So Yeah, um, and see, that's powerful to know because, and that's where the intelligence piece comes in. I'm, mo I'm emotionally intelligent because I'm smarter about who you are, what makes you tick. So I can avoid things like, hey, John, I'm shoving you into this or I'm expecting this out of you. I can tailor my approach. So was it a 4K assessment? Is that the name of the one you mentioned? Yeah, it's the F-O-R-T-E. It's, it's French for strength. And, okay. uh, and I use it. It's a fantastic assessment. I use that in my coaching and, and uh, a lot of my leadership interactions. Yeah, when you described it, it sounded a little bit like uh, what I've heard about the big five, um, mm. or what's the other one, the Hexaco. Um, mm -hmm. It sounded like the 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 characteristics of it were were similar. Yeah. Do you use any other like DISC or any of the other assessments in your, your practice? I've used uh, I've used DISC before. Done some work with Myers Briggs. Um, they're all very good. I mean, you're you're gonna gain value out of them. What I like about Forte, it takes about eight minutes to complete it, and it spits back an instant report. It'll blow your mind. Like, how did it figure that out about me? Well, it's the guy running it has been doing it since 1978, so it's got deep history and analytics behind it that, that allows it to do that. Because nobody's got time for a 45-page report and a one-hour survey to fill out. Nobody's got time for that. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's very true. So I'm curious. You mentioned working in the virtual environment, and one of about a year ago. 
I stumbled across a YouTube channel called the Behavior Panel, and it's four mm -hmm. guys who Dr. Phil refers to as like the top behavior analysis people on the planet. Um, and I got really hooked on watching their videos where they would break down, they would show a video, typically maybe someone who's suspected of a crime and they're at a press conference or they're being interviewed or, or interrogated, and they'll show a little snippet, maybe 15, 30 seconds, and then all four of them will give commentary on it. And then they'll wow. show the snippet again. And the first time that I watched it, I was like, this looks like a magic trick. Like the second time you <laughs> watch it, you see it all because now you know what to look for. And so mm. it was about a year ago, I, I started learning more about that. And the challenge that I found is that with so much work being virtual, even with the knowledge and the skills to spot that stuff, it's increasingly difficult to see that, especially in groups, right? Because if I'm looking for things like watching your blink rate or your breathing or, or you know, hand gestures or, or whatever, that becomes difficult as the size of your image on the screen starts to, to get yeah. smaller. So I'm right. curious, are you doing more work virtually or face-to-face -face these days? Uh, I would say more virtually, and, and the pandemic brought that out. Now, there is goodness there, right? I, I can get to more people. Yeah. I've got four coaching clients right now, two in North Carolina and two in New York City. Um, and I did a big speech uh, for advanced auto parts, corporate. Uh, there were a couple thousand people on the, on the, in the speech. But think of how hard it would be for the, that company to gather all those people in one place. Uh, or how logistically difficult it would be for me to get to somebody in New York City to do coaching once a week. So it's helped in that respect. And, you know, it's effective in that respect. But there's still a void, still a void of, of this, you know, interaction at work. Are there, have, have you found any specific tools or tactics when you're working with people virtually in groups that have helped with that? Well, I... Um, I like when they're all gathered in the same place. Um, like I do uh, interaction reports with Forte in, in a group setting. Okay. And it's, it's fun when they're all together in the same room because they can interact as I'm, you know, doing coaching them virtually through this session. Uh, so that's been helpful. You know, certainly cameras on uh, is absolutely the way to go. I, you know, I'm always skeptical when the camera's off. I, I just can't help it. You just don't know what somebody's doing and yeah. whether you have their attention or not. You know, so that's a challenge, but it's, um, I don't know. I think it's just, it's just, just having the, the direct attention of somebody on a session like this and that, and keeping them engaged and, and that they're interacting and, you know, kind of the discipline of the organization. Okay. Shut things, shut everything off for a while in your environment, focus in on this screen list because it's the best you can do if, if that's all you can be virtual. Yeah. I've, I've asked some of the people I've had on the, the program um, have had, tips but even some of the most accomplished communicators in the world i'm hearing feel a little bit frustrated because there's only so much you can do um, yeah. i've started to experiment with different tools um, there's one called mentimeter that i use there's a bunch of them of i've experimented with that mm -hmm. they're just they're engagement tools they add a little bit of gamification to things um, and chase hughes who's a guy that i'm going to uh, have on next week talks a lot about um, he was in the DIA for a year, spent 20 years yep. in the Navy and um, working in intelligence. And he talks about one, one of the biggest ways to influence someone is with novelty. And all these different things that I'm trying to experiment with are along those lines, you know, 
different things that are novel, spacing them out so that every few minutes you're doing, even if it's something as simple as just going silent, because now those people that were distracted with something else are going, hey, what just happened? Uh, stop right? There's like a million yeah. different things you could try, but it's finding that sweet spot of the variety where it doesn't seem like, you know, it's turning into a variety show and it's getting, you know, off task, but yeah. there's enough to keep people interested. So. Well, I, I use, um, you know, more to the, to the question you asked. I, I, um, I try to treat it like I'm having a cup of coffee with somebody and it's just the two of us sitting there in a coffee shop somewhere. It's a speaking, it's a professional speaking technique. When you speak to an audience, you know, pretend as if you're 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 having a cup of coffee with them, and then of course, where you posture yourself, uh, where the where the camera is, you know, so you're not off at an angle or you know, some weird yeah. place. I try, especially when I'm speaking, is to get face level so that I'm looking straight into the camera, not up or down. So little techniques like that, I think, can make a big difference. Yeah, that was a huge one. I I stole from um, Mark Bowden has a whole video he did on uh, virtual. Uh, yeah. speaking and training. And that was one of the things that I took is I usually had my camera on the top of my monitor. So I'd be looking up like this while you're over here on my screen. And then when I would see a recording back, there was this disconnect. And what he pointed out that I noticed after I watched it was, well, that disconnect you're getting when you're watching the video back is what everybody's getting live. Yeah. Right? So the, the more <laughs> you can make it look like I'm looking you in the eye, you know, the more you're going to get that engagement. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's just, it's, it seems like a constant challenge, but um, to your point, the, the upside of it is that it does allow us to get to more people, have more it reach. Um, and for us, from a business perspective, that's good for our business, but it's also for a lot of these companies, they're now doing more training that they wouldn't have done before because it wasn't in the budget, if they had to fly someone like you out and pay all your, not just whatever your speaking fee or your training fee, but now all your travel expenses, sure. now that the travel expenses go away, now it's a whole different conversation. Now maybe you're actually able to provide more value. And now, yeah, we've got to deal with these, these virtual challenges, um, but, but it, it opens up a little bit more of a value gap. It, it does. I find it interesting too, that you said having them all in a room um, I've actually found those hybrid situations more challenging, but I think my guess is that the reason you've had success with it is you've probably done a lot of the work up front to make sure that they're they're set up properly. Because um, yeah, I, yeah, because what I'm what I'm trying to do there is is just to create some synergy between them and some interaction and bonding, and it's very powerful if it can, if it can happen in a room like that for sure. Yeah, I, I was at a networking event last week that was uh, hybrid. So mm. I was on Zoom, there were three other people on Zoom and then a room full of people live face-to-face -to -face together. And unfortunately, whoever set up the laptop that we were viewing forgot about us. And so we just got room noise. So we couldn't even talk to each other on Zoom and we could barely hear them on the audio. And it just, it ended up not working out very well. <laughs> but then afterwards we did a little debrief with the person running the, the networking event. And they were like, okay, there's like three things we can do to fix that so that next time it's a better experience. Yeah. And once you sort of work out the kinks, that then we get to a point where, yeah, now this, this hybrid thing actually can have some legs um, and really add a lot of value where now I'm not losing an hour and a half in commute time. 
And now it opens up more possibilities for all of us to be able to participate in more things. Sure. Yep. So, um, so I wanted to touch on something that we had talked about this uh, before, and it's something that I think you're uniquely qualified to speak to. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a situation in Afghanistan and how, how we pulled out. And it seems like I, I don't, I, I try to not watch too much news. I try to watch enough to, to keep up with things, but sure. Um, but it seems like the coverage has kind of died off. Um, I know there was a period there where there was a handful of either current or I guess technically the former special operations guys, mm -hmm. um, Tim Kennedy and uh, Chad Robichaux and, and a group of guys that they took that there was a lot of controversy because they were going and trying to help and people didn't realize that they were actually coordinating with mm -hmm. all of the right people. Um, but what are your thoughts on how that all went down and kind of where we are today and, and going forward, your thoughts on, on what, what yeah. we can do as a country better? Yeah, well, it's, it's not too um, big of a question. <laughs> it's it's a huge question, and but but it's a worthwhile question because I know it is on the minds of people. Um, there's a few pieces to this. Uh, you know, I, th I certainly think that it, it's if it's not affecting us in our daily lives, then we tend to lose you know interest and, and attention, and that's one of the uh, disadvantages, I guess you could say, we have in the United States is that we are so isolated with oceans and you know two non-threatening countries to our north and south that we suffer from that. It's not on our borders. We're not seeing it up close and personal. Um, Afghanistan, and we certainly should have gone in there um, and, you know, after 9-11, uh, but we made some pretty strategic mistakes early on. And I, and I think that is that we thought we could make something out of this country where in, in actuality, it, it has to self-actualize. It has to find its own way. Uh, and that's hard. And, and look, if you're going to commit to doing what we try to do in Afghanistan, you're signing up for the better part of 100 years because it's going to take generations to wean them out of the violence and the, and the history of what happened there and millions and millions of service members, which we don't have the, the people and the money to do something like that. So uh, it's easy to get into wars, relatively easy, very difficult to get out of them. And, and we've seen the results of that in the last two uh, we never had, there was never any kind of cohesive, long-term, enduring strategy. I compare it to the Cold War, where the strategy was containment. Contain the Soviet Union, you know, and stand up against communism, and eventually it falls on its own. And that endured through several presidents, presidential administrations, and it worked over time. Here, it was like every presidential administration, every unit that came in year after year in Afghanistan was, was re reinventing the rules. And the Taliban aren't dumb. They may not have sophisticated weapons and whatnot, but they were watching and waiting us out. And, and they don't necessarily care that they've lost thousands of, of fighters. You know, they could wait us out and watch, uh, watch this go down so they, they could see it coming. Um, th there was political failure for sure, in terms of a cohesive strategy and commitment of the nation and, you know, and seeing this thing as a long-term thing. There was there were these, you know, surges where we can put in place where we thought, okay, this is going to turn the tide, when, when in, in fact they didn't. Uh, and there was this way too much management of, okay, we're going to send 30,000 troops. Okay, why 30,000? Why not 35? Well, what is it we're trying to achieve? You start there and then you apply the numbers to that. Instead, it was backwards. A lot of these blunders. 
militarily, I say often, we have some ownership in this failure and I have ownership in it because I was a commander there twice. We were a football team at a baseball game, right? We went in uh, as a conventional force looking to fight somebody tank on tank, weapon on weapon, soldier on soldier. Well, what we found was an, a, an insurgency immersed in a population hard to detect, fighting us in different ways where we were weak. Uh, but we kept fighting this, you know, football game, uh, you know, rigid, linear, down the field, blocking and tackling, instead of really kind of getting immersed into the population and understanding what was happening and social grievances and, and addressing those, which was really fueling the insurgency. So there was a lot of misstep there because there is this comfortable vision of war, what we think war ought to be, and this what we train towards, but then we get someplace, we find out it's something very different because the enemy gets a vote. Um, so we pulled out and we did so rapidly and very sloppily and uh, it was bad. Look, John, the, the unfortunate reality of our, of our times is we're going to have to have men and women in harm's way at some very dangerous places forward on the ground where threats emanate, not sitting here on our shores trying to fight this thing over the horizon, as they say. It won't work. Um, nobody wants the troops home more than I, but we're just not going to be able to fight this by sitting at home. We've got to have to be in dangerous places. So something should have stayed there so that we at least had entry and some sort of influence on our national government. Uh, there were certainly, you know, successes we could have exploited uh, and, and gotten on board with. But I just think it was a long series of missteps that led to this. And then eventually it was just like, OK, you know, let's pull out. Um, we're in a dangerous place today, right? We can't control what happens in the borders of Afghanistan. We have no influence on that anymore. Uh, let's not fool ourselves. I think a drone strike that takes out a bad actor, like we've seen a few, has really had any major impact. It, it certainly sends a message and it's, it's not entirely a bad thing, but it doesn't change the tide of, you know, terrorism and what's happening in these places. And so, it was sad. And I, and I wrote an article about this. I can share with you. You know, maybe you can put the notes on the on thing. It just talks about more in depth in terms of how I saw this go down, what, what the mistakes uh, were, and then what we do going forward, which is, in closing, uh, we've got to learn from this and never make this mistake again. I'm worried that we haven't. I'm worried this is a post-Vietnam era all over again, where we look back and say, okay, we're never doing that again. But yeah, we get thrust into some place in harm's way again somewhere. We just have to, you know, refresh those lessons of old where they're, they're, they're long gone. So I'm afraid we're kind of losing the lessons of that. We're not keeping those at the forefront. And they just got to keep this in the conversation, national conversation. Of, look, it's, look, this happened and we should know better, you know. Um, and we should, as a nation, go to war, not just the military. So there's a lot of things that occur that uh, in many ways... You know, I wasn't surprised in terms of how things ended, uh, though it just went very rapidly and, and very sloppily. So just sat all around it. And my, the only hope is that, uh, you, know, you know, that we've left behind in memory a taste of freedom that they got, that they'll remember and maybe on their own rise up and bring this to the forefront at some point in time in their own nation, uh, which would really make, you know, the, the service of those, especially the fallen, you know, uh, worthwhile and not in vain. So this kind of makes me wonder about, I don't know if 
if it's related, but give me your thoughts on it, if it's related, the, the recruiting challenge that the military is having. I know, I don't remember how many years ago, but several years ago, I, I watched a TED talk uh, by, I believe it was an army general who was talking about obesity as a yep. national security issue. Um, so I know that's part of the challenge with recruiting. We've got a lot of young people who simply can't physically qualify to get into the military. Um, but how much do you think, if any, this, how everything went down in Afghanistan and sort of the civilian sentiment towards the military is factoring into the recruiting challenges? You know, I, I don't know, John. I don't know that I could answer that intelligently in terms of, of what's happening and why it's happening. Um, I certainly believe that, you know, I, I think you're, you're not, it's not a stretch what you just said. Uh, as they look at this, it's okay, why would I send my son and daughter into this when the nation doesn't support it, or at least the, the you know, presidential administration don't get behind those they send into harm's way? Or watch how sloppy we've done it. Uh, I imagine that's probably got a lot to do with it as well. Uh, in terms of recruiting challenges. And yeah, a vast majority of the country can't get into, I think it's something like 70% of our nation cannot serve in the military for physical reasons and, and other reasons, uh, which yeah, is pretty scary, so. Yeah, I, I think Tim Kennedy put out a social media post about that and kind of went through a list of all the different reasons, most of which were to your point, either they weren't physically fit enough or there's so many of them that have experimented with recreational drugs that would disqualify yep. them, all, all kinds of different reasons. Um, and you had mentioned on, uh, in another interview that you like the idea of everyone having to serve, not necessarily in the military, but some type of service to the country. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about your thoughts on that? Because I thought it was sure. an interesting viewpoint. Yeah, I, um, I just know from personal experience what the Army did for me. And, and that was the stripping of my individuality and, and the, you know, making me a soldier into this bigger team and, and squeezing that selfishness out of me and making me a selfless server. I have, and, and almost every veteran I talk to uh, has service in their DNA because they see the benefits of it. That's what that gets into us. And so, yeah, I think some sort of national service would be in order. I think a draft is a stretch. I'm not sure that's you know a worthy thing, but wouldn't it be great if there was some requirement of some sort or maybe more of a attractiveness to serve the country in some fashion, you know, to become part of something bigger than oneself? Because uh, you can see it in veterans wherever you go, that stuff sticks. You know, we're soldiers, yeah. sailors, airmen, Marines, the rest of our lives, and we carry that forward. Yeah, I see it even just growing up as an army brat, even never having served, that a lot of the values that I still stick to today are values instilled in me by my dad that he got from the army and that, you know, my 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 extended family, they all kind of learned those lessons. And I guess that's what I'm I'm very optimistic because there are so many military veterans that are running for office all the way from local level up to, you know, the Senate and, uh, and Congress and, and, yep. and are banding together and helping support each other and, and trying to get their voices heard. Um, so that makes me optimistic. Um, but the part that worries me is, is exactly the opposite, the, the opposite side of the same thing, which is it's a values thing. It's a breakdown in, in fundamental values where we're kind of getting off the same page. And I, Sometimes I, I, 
I try not to listen to some of these these voices, but sometimes I'll hear these people talking about how some of our our enemies are playing the long game, where where they're playing a a twenty year or a fifty year game, where mm-hmm. they're sort of infiltrating more at a societal cultural level with different things that kind of come in under the wire that are very difficult to perceive if you're not if you don't know what you're looking for kind of like what i was talking about with those behavior panel guys you watch it and you see nothing and then somebody shows you what to look for then you watch it again and you go oh gosh i missed all that right yeah it's true Uh, i wrote about this in an article i wrote about uh ukraine when that first went down when russia first went in there uh, about you know the forty mile convoy in our own country, which exists and it, it exists in the form of cyber attacks from China and Russia. It exists in the form of their infiltration into our intellectual property and the private companies and in academia uh, and all those things. So the, the threat is real. The problem is we have this conventional uh, view of a threat. It's not a problem. It's not a threat. It's not. It's not a threat until we see a mushroom cloud or a leveled city uh, or refugees on the march. And unfortunately, it's not. And and our enemies know that. They know they can sink under the radar and get away with it like that. And I hope that we're catching up. Yeah, it seems like too many, so many people feel like if it's not a visible uh, physical threat, then it's not a threat. Um, Yeah, when I think about all of the, like the supply chain that's controlled by i don't remember what the percentage is but like the the american meat market like some huge percentage of the meat supply in this country is controlled by chinese entities i mean they they took over yeah. with smithfield foods years ago and there's all these these things that are happening sort of under the the consciousness of if people aren't really paying attention and again my my optimism is that we've got people like the Jocko Willings of the world who are saying, what do you mean we can't make this stuff in the U.S.? That's a bunch mm-hmm. of BS. Right. Hold my beer. And, and they're doing it. with like mm-hmm. I don't know if you follow Jocko Willink and Orig- his company Origin and you know all the different products that they make, all made in the USA. E- everything from the, the raw materials to the, the labor, everything. Um, and then the challenge that I worry about there is their prices are higher because they're paying an American wage and we're mm-hmm. so used to paying these cheaper prices for slave labor from other countries. And um, I'm still, I, I probably sound like a crazy person to some people, but I'm still <laughs> optimistic because there are people that are rising up and saying, you know what, I didn't want to get involved in politics, but doggone it, somebody's got to do it. And I got this in my bones to serve um, something bigger yeah. than myself and my country. Okay, I'll take one for the team. I'll suck it up for four years or whatever the term is to do my duty to kind of get this ball moving back in the right direction. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I hear you, John. I mean, and, you know, back to your, your original point there is, is the values piece of this. You know, you grew up in a values-based society. Um, that's, what my, that's what I talk about my children is, is the goodness of being a military family is that I came home every day talking about selfless service and maybe what somebody might have done that was just not helpful to the organization and how it was really about the mission and the people around us. And so they saw that day in and day out, as you did 30 years. And that gets into your DNA, whether you served or not, you know, you still have that. So 
Yeah, I'm optimistic like you. I do think that most of our countrymen and women wake up each day wanting to do good and uh, are, are smart enough and, and agile enough to bring some of these things back into our own nation so that we're not reliant upon those that wish us harm. Well, so let's wrap up on a positive here because the work that you do is very much in the same vein of, of what we're talking about here, mm -hmm. uh, about the things to be optimistic about. Um, tell me a little bit about some of the specific coaching work that you do and the types of organizations that are your sweet spot that are really like the, the best clients for you that you can really sort of move the needle with the most? Yeah, I've been, uh, I've been coached, you know, by other uh, business um, experts, you know, to, to niche down, right? Go one place <laughs> and focus on one thing. And, and I confess that, that I'm not, I'm spread all over the place. But here's the common piece, John, is that a company at the end of the day is a collection of people. And it's got a mission, it's got a cause that it serves. And so there's commonality anywhere where I get someone that's leading people, two people or 200, the same concepts apply because we're all in this human journey, this human endeavor together. And so I'm able to do that. Now I've worked in pharmaceuticals, I've worked in, uh, in the trades. I've done some work with, uh, with government organizations, fish and wildlife and the military. I had done some work um, uh, with the uh, sheriffs, uh, police, law enforcement, first responders, with nurses and, and medical organizations. So a wide variety, and it's a lot of fun because you can get in there and get a sense of what you know what the nuances are inside their own organizations and their industries. But at its core, the conversation I'm having in any one of those places is very similar because they're trying to influence somebody to do something they might not otherwise do. They're trying to invest in someone to get them to the next journey. So coaching for me, it, it's all about the process and the process works. And if you stick with it, uh, you can get there. It's at least a three months journey. Anybody that comes to me that wants coaching and just can't commit for that length of time, they're just not serious about it because it's like working out in a gym. You're not going to see results in 30 days. Right? It may even take the better part of 90 days to start to see some, some changes. And that's what Coaching is the same thing. Leadership is the same thing. It takes time and repetition and practice. So usually between three and three months minimum, and usually six months is optimal to see that kind of growth. We start off with um, with self awareness. You know, the forte assessment. Get to know each other on a deeper level, and then we travel a journey where we show up once a week for an hour and talk about what's weighing them down. I do a lot of listening. Uh, and it's, you know, it's different from what we did in the military and counseling because I was a senior person. I had the experience and I had authority and coaching. It's a peer relationship. I don't outrank the person at all. And it's non-judgmental. You know, if they came in and they didn't do something they, they said they were going to commit to, I'm only going to ask out of curiosity why that didn't occur and kind of tease out some things. My job as a coach is to shed, a, shed light on things that are in them already because the answers lie within them. It's just my job to tease those out. So it's, it's, it's completely the opposite of, okay, John, you're struggling with X. Well, here's what you do. Follow these steps, try that, and the result will be, go give that a shot, come back and tell me how it went. That's not coaching. Coaching is, why is that a challenge for you, John? What's the hardest part? Okay, what happened when you did that? What did you feel? What, what were the results? What did people say? How did they react? Okay, what do you think you can do to fix that? What you, what's a step you could take perhaps to get to a better place, you know, to be able to get to build a confidence or, or perform a bit better. 
And you're going to dig hard. You're going to struggle, struggle a little bit, be like in the deep end of the pool, and you'll discover the answer. And I can help tease that out. Now, I don't just sit there and fold my arms. I have a lot to offer. And I can offer concepts on how they can communicate better and approach situations like that, problem solve better, lead up and lead down and all the things that go with it. So that's the coaching journey. And when I get someone that's really dedicated and committed to it, then we've got a good thing. So the first step of that is that free 30-minute leadership coaching session that you offer. Yes. How does, how does someone get in touch with you to get that ball rolling? If they've been listening to this going, I, I got to reach out. I got, I need to talk to Rob. Yeah. And... There's two, two main ways. The first of my website, you go on there and uh, connect with Rob and um, you can find me there. Uh, the second is LinkedIn. Um, very active on LinkedIn, got 20,000 followers. So a great place to connect right there on LinkedIn and reach out okay. to me. And we'll put all that in the show notes. Everybody has that. So it's easy for them to get in touch with you. So I like to wrap up with uh, kind of a fun question. Imagine if I gave you a free billboard and the only caveat was you can't use it to advertise your business. <laughs> what would you put on a billboard? What would I put on the billboard? Um, go invest in your people. I mean, that's, that was my mantra in Brigade Command, investing in people. And so I would... I would pose that. I would I would present that as a concept, maybe with some neat graphic to support it, um, and to get them thinking. You know, to invest in something is to dedicate time, talent, resources to get something in return, and that is to make better people. That's what investing in people is all about. So, yeah, that's there great. it is. That's a great way to wrap up, well, Rob. Thank you very much for your time. There's I could talk to you all day. I've got a million other questions that I'd like to ask you, but maybe we can have you back on sometime down the road and explore some of those. Um, for all of these, those of you that are listening and watching, if you're interested in coaching, reach out to Rob, get the ball rolling. Thanks, John. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.